Welcome to part two of our series on women's health. If you haven't listened to part one, we spoke to Dr. Jamie Croft, a surgeon at Sunnybrook Hospital, and Amanda Weston, who shed some light on the diagnosis and treatment of endometriosis from the physician and patient perspective. Our discussions in that episode highlighted some of the challenges experienced by people living with endometriosis and gaps in care that remain to be addressed, so be sure to give part one a listen. In the second part of this episode, we had the pleasure of speaking with Naomi Forward from Thea and Beth Dobson from Metal, who spoke to us about a product designed to combat accessibility issues related to cervical cancer screening. Naomi is a co-founder at Thea, who created a new at-home cervical cancer screening product, and Beth is a UX designer at Metal, a company that works to make these innovations come to life. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge that the conditions we discussed today are primarily recognized in cisgendered women and gendered language was used throughout the episode. However, it is important to note that individuals of other genders are impacted by these conditions and face additional barriers to receiving a diagnosis and accessing treatment. My name is Hannah. And I'm Maddie. Welcome to part two of episode 117 of Raw Talk Podcast. The Canadian Guidelines for Cervical Cancer Screening recommend screening every two to three years for people aged 21 to 70, and this is usually what is commonly known as a pap test or a smear test. Cervical cancer is the third most common cancer amongst women aged 25 to 35 years, which makes early detection extremely important because it can greatly increase the chances of success of treatment. Naomi speaks more on this topic. Often people go to smear tests because they know I should be going to a smear test. They're not necessarily sure why or what it's doing. It's just something that culturally we're used to to knowing. It's what we should do every kind of three years. It's actually really astonishing to know that cervical cancer used to be the biggest killer globally, despite the fact it doesn't affect half the population. It is a, a cancer that is extremely aggressive and screening is, is just this incredible way of actually looking at that super early on and can prevent 99.8%. I mean, if you said that about any other type of cancer that you could almost entirely eradicate it, people would be lining up. Because of this significant reduction that we see via screening, people have become quite sort of lazy or hesitant because of the short-term pain. And as a result, the screening numbers um, we're seeing are dropping and the number of cervical cancer rates are unfortunately increasing and getting to a 20-year high. So it's something that we, we need to address really quite quickly to make sure it's not affecting young women, normally about 30. So... The way that the sort of structure works is when you go for a test, they test for HPV. This is something um, which has shifted in the last couple of years. And HPV is a virus that causes the majority of cervical cancers. So you swab for that. Um, following that, if high-risk HPV shows up on that test, then you have something called a colposcopy, which is basically scraping cells off of your your cervix and that is the traditional smear that people um think about 
The reason why that's not done in the majority of cases upfront is that actually it's only sort of 10 to 15% of women that need that. Um, it's a fair amount more painful um, and it's not required. And actually HPV has been shown to be far more effective um, at flagging early stage than going straight to a colposcopy. Many factors must be considered to better understand current cervical cancer screening rates. Naomi speaks about some of those barriers, including the accessibility of clinics, appointment availability, pain associated with the screening tests, socioeconomic disadvantages, and widespread misinformation. We see that the number of individuals that, um, that don't go for screening and end up being affected by cervical cancer at a high rate, unsurprisingly, are actually those from significantly disadvantaged backgrounds. And so those that are poorer, with worse kind of access to health, normally with healthcare services in the UK, we're very fortunate to have the NHS, but it's very oversubscribed, particularly in urban areas where you're likely to have poorer communities. And those individuals are struggling, like, like I struggle to get an appointment, they're struggling to, to get appointments. There are also a huge number of myths and mistakes when it comes to cervical cancer and its relation to HPV. Often HPV, which is the kind of foundation that then turns into, it's the virus that turns into cervical cancer or affects the cells. That is something which people often think of as an STD and therefore think they only need to go for screening if they are sort of sexually active and they're not in long-term relationships. Uh, that is just a complete mistake. It is usually passed in that way, but not, not always. Um, it also can stay in your system for sort of 30, 40 years. So you could be very happily married, long-term relationship, and then get affected by this. And because of those, those issues amongst either sort of ethnic minorities, in particular religious communities, there is very, very low numbers of individuals going for screening. We have found from speaking to individuals, those who don't want to have intimate examinations because of either sort of sexual assault in the past or different difficulties that they struggle. These trans community and the LGBTQ plus community are very reluctant and the screening numbers are lowest in those communities to go along. So there are a big cultural difficulties as well as sort of systematic issues in the way in which you can just book an appointment and go along that are leading to these drops in numbers. By doing it at home, suddenly if you have a lot of difficulties getting out and leaving the house, you're able to, to test yourself very easily. It means that if you have any concerns about, say, your doctor being male, <laughs> it allows that to be, to be opened up. And so suddenly a huge number of barriers from an accessibility perspective that apply either from a physical or, or cultural perspective are removed. This is something that is very similar to a COVID PCR test not a lateral flow, a PCR one, that you would pop in the post. And so if you think from that perspective, you're able to have it delivered to your door, 
you can easily drop it off or, or have somebody drop that off for you and you wouldn't actually need to leave the, the house for it. And that should be done as an available alternative to nationally funded screening tests. Like that's what the ultimate goal is, to have minimal to no cost to the end user. Now, to start off with, doing these tests, there is a cost associated, not just with the, the product cost, but actually it's the laboratory cost. That is the big cost. So that it's not a cheap <laughs> test to start off with. It would be about £100 to do. So that's how much it would cost at the beginning. As this scales out and we can reach uh, more women, that cost can then reduce, which is really exciting. But the aim is very much to work with local healthcare professionals and agencies, whether that is private healthcare providers or public healthcare providers in order to have this available to women for free as an alternative to what would otherwise be funded. From a government perspective, even though that might sound like quite a lot, the amount of money it would save from a costing perspective in appointment times alone we estimate in the UK would be between 200 and 300 million pounds in savings to the NHS. It is a big, <laughs> chunky amount. In Canada, your doctors are paid a lot more than ours. So <laughs> I can almost guarantee that it would be a higher amount. You also have huge savings by early detection of cervical cancer. As mentioned, the the number of women that are testing positive is going up. And so to enable those individuals to have a private alternative um, would also drive down the cost to healthcare providers. But yeah, you're looking at about £100 to begin with, but the idea is that that will, will drop and hopefully become free with that work with national programmes. I think it's really kind of incredible how much thought has gone into both the physical, cultural, social, and just individual barriers. There's so many points at which these different things can kind of stop someone from wanting to or actually accessing the screening, even if they do. And it's a, the way that the results are accessed and delivered seems like a pretty unique feature of Thea. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that. So the first thing is having those available either in the sort of app that's been designed or on the site to be shared on there or by email um, or to still have it by post if that's something that you require and, and you would need it to be done so. So you'd get it in that way. What we then do is provide detailed information as to what your result means. What does it mean to be positive? The fact that being positive for HPV does not mean you've got cervical cancer. So making that very clear. Also making the next steps crystal clear as to what you need to share with your GP, um, what you need to do as a follow-up, what the timings are for it. The sort of lead length for, for cervical cancer is, is quite a long period of time. The reason tests are done every three years is to try and just make sure you catch it at the beginning or at the end. So you have time, you just need to know where to go and what to do. So providing that information. In time, we really hope to build this out to have even greater clinical information available and clinical support 
if you have difficulties and problems and being able to get that clinical support. Now that Naomi has helped us better understand why products such as the home cervical cancer screening kits are important and necessary for improved public health, Beth tells us more about how such concepts are taken from the ideation stage to reality with the help of product design companies such as Metal, which is currently based in the UK. So Metal Studios is a, at its core a product design studio. We very much partner with our clients in terms of like having a shared goal to kind of create the most authentic product at the end that really solves the problem for the users. We specialize in UX design and we also specialize in creating software and hardware solutions. So being able to like pair those two things together. And Thea is kind of a, a perfect product for us in terms of like we've got a digital element to it and our team really want to make sure that every touch point is really considered. And a big part of our role within this project was also the branding and the storytelling that goes around it. It needs to be a product that needs to be desirable. People are going to want some, like to come through your door and have something that is an internal swab. <laughs> it's like a brush, which is maybe not the most beautiful of things. But if it's packaged up in a, like, a lovely way, that it's a nice thing to receive. That kind of changes the whole experience around it. So it was a big goal of Metal to make a product that felt safe. It felt trusted, but really did was really functional, was really useful and um, also beautiful. It was a really fun challenge in terms of like how do you make inclusive personas. Personas are a tool that design studios use to create authentic products for the users and I think there's loads of different areas in which why you would attach to there and like um, I think there is the idea of like innovation, you know, this is an innovative product that's changing the way that women test themselves for HPV and how women take power over you know the chance of of having cervical cancer there's also the the inclusive nature one of like I actually um I want to be part of something bigger I want to be part of something that everyone can be part of when that was coming down to choosing a typeface choosing a color scheme choosing how we lay out pages we've tried to make the most inclusive decisions in terms of like an accessible brand but then also within that experience, like how do we make this test work for every person with a cervix? And I think it's such a big driver in terms of motivation because there is so many, like smear test every woman. You, sort, you speak to every person that has had one all comes back being like, that was unpleasant. <laughs> it's, no one's having a great time having a smear test. And like the idea of how simple a PCR test is and being able to translate that to people, all you have to do is a PCR test. Beth also highlighted the importance of branding, marketing, and storytelling in developing new health tools and connecting with a wider audience. My passion is branding. It's, it's like being able to interact with products that, like it feels nice too and there's so many medical products that I think like often we get sort of femtech products in or medical products we've got another product uh, in the studio which is a heated sensor that you put on your breast before you go into a mastectomy so for, for breast cancer patients and it reduces the the likelihood of infection and like speeds up healing time which is an amazing product but like it as a product is a sensor that's inside a bra that is attached to a battery pack and that by itself it doesn't really get me excited the story and talking to Sahil who is the the founder and all of these amazing women that he's spoken to to create this product there is a beautiful story inside that but branding and storytelling allows that 
to be understood and it allows people to want to connect with it. I kind of always say that like how it feels is as important as how it works. You know, like when you pick up your phone and you use a different app, we understand the bad experience, right? We understand being like, no, do you know what? I'm actually not going to buy this because the checkout process is so horrible. Whereas like if you have this seamless checkout process and you have this like really nice delivery of information, it becomes just like effortless and you hardly see the things on the screen because they just work so well for you. Um, and I think that within med tech products, within femtech products within general things that we forget often and I think it's been forgotten about for a long time that like we can make things look nice and we're used to the aesthetic of a hospital and we're used to the aesthetic of smear tests or pap tests pap smears we wanted to create something within this that gave you the feeling of like a lovely product that you would choose to buy lastly Beth and Naomi share some words of wisdom and advice with others who are committed to innovating in the women's health space I think inclusivity at the core of whatever you're doing is so important if you design for the people that are generally left out of the equation you're always going to design a better product you know like if you're just designing for the core person that we've always been designing for like it's gonna there's always going to be downfalls in your product so I think designing for an inclusive market and really like doing the user research and having the user at the core of every decision you make like that's a huge driver and that you'll always come out with a great product if you kind of always run with that. I think from a design point of view and maybe a brand point of view, having something that feels like it's owned by the user in terms of like an aesthetic that they already understand, they already feel ownership over is really important. And I think, yeah, make things beautiful. Like if, why not? You know, if we're going to, if we're going to, if they're going to exist, not why not make them feel nice to use? Yeah, and I would add to that the health, like female health technology in particular, is at the start of this revolution that is taking place. Um, that is incredible to see. It's been really forgotten <laughs> often when it comes to whether it's period care or it's menopause, things that have not been at the front of conversation that we've been embarrassed to talk about and there has been very little innovation and that's suddenly growing. So from a numbers perspective, if you look at the UK, we've gone from about $19 million worth of, of sort of femtech technology in, in 2018 to $700 million in 2021. And that is just keeps growing. At Thea, we're actually working with Femtech Labs, which is a big central hub for female health technology. And the number of brands and areas that are coming through that are starting to change a whole multitude of different areas for, for women's health is very exciting to see and well overdue. Thank you to our guests, Naomi and Beth from Thea and Metal Studios for joining us on this episode. And of course, thank you for listening. This episode was hosted by myself, Maddie, and Hannah. Noor, Hannah, Maddie, and Mayoa conducted the interviews. Atifa, Vina, and Reina developed content. Reina and Tima were our audio engineers. Anam helped with promotions. And Noor and Atifa were our executive producers. Keep an eye out for an article written by Vina. We would like to acknowledge that Toronto was founded on the traditional territory of many Indigenous nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Huron-Wendat. 
This meeting place is still home to many First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people, and we are grateful for the opportunity to live and work on this land. We would also like to acknowledge the long history of science and medicine as tools of oppression against Indigenous peoples, and the barriers to healthcare that are still experienced by Indigenous peoples in Canada today. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science and the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. Thank you.